0: WDBM, East Lansing.
1: 89FM, The Impact.
0: And now,
2: Impact Exposure.
3: Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is
0: Impact Exposure. Exposure.
3: Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman, and this is Exposure on the Impact 89FM. Tonight on the show, we have reporter Daniel Razell to talk about record stores. After that, we have Mark Weinstein with us to talk about net neutrality and online security. To wrap it all up, we go to reporter Audrey Matus. She tackles Yik Yak and finds a greater issue within. But right now, we sit down with Zoe Jackson and Jenny Opie to talk about the consent campaign going around campus. You're listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. We're sitting down here with Zoe Jackson and Jenny Opie. How are you guys doing today?
4: Great, good.
3: We're here to talk about the consent campaign going around campus. Um, what can you guys tell us about this this uh, consent campaign?
4: Well, um, over the summer we had a retreat. Um, I guess I'm part of the group Students United, MSU Students United. Um, And over the summer, we had a retreat kind of talking about what we wanted to do for this upcoming year and something that I've been thinking a lot about, I guess, the past year was consent and how it wasn't um, really part of anything on campus and part of the the programs that are put on by the campus. Um, So I kind of took it upon myself to um, start something related to consent. I guess. And that and through that, we started these consent workshops. Um,
5: I I heard about the consent workshops and I knew that Zoe and Ellie were doing them um, and I wanted to get more involved. And uh, we did an action one day and then we just came in contact and kind of created a group from there.
3: What, what would you say MSU has as far as experience with consent, knowledge of consent, awareness of these kinds of things?
5: MSU as a whole.
3: Yeah, MSU as a whole, just our campus, I suppose.
5: I don't know. I feel like that's hard to to answer because it's hard to like clump everyone together. I think there's sections that really are knowledgeable about it, and there's active movements to try and like spread consent, but it's definitely not widespread, I don't think. Yeah, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of programs uh,
4: through the university around sexual assault um, and handling like cases of sexual assault or how, like what what to do with uh, survivors after sexual assault happens. Um, but there's a, a little little focus, in my opinion, on preventative measures of sexual assault, like how to not sexually assault someone. And the, and we view consent as a way to prevent sexual assault.
3: So I did attend one of the uh, consent workshops that mm-hmm. uh, Zoe you had uh, hosted. Yeah, and I and I, I learned a lot there. Um, I thought a lot of it wasn't knowledge that is all that prevalent around um, campus, um, especially when it comes to how f- how far you can take consent. Um, because it, it relates to more than just uh, you know sex right mm-hmm. what what else can it
4: um uh, yeah i guess a, a big part of the the workshops is well part of the workshops is focusing on consent in a broader non-sexual um like non-sexual interactions so even like how to deal with coworkers or how to um, how to deal with classmates and uh, not deal necessarily, but how to interact with classmates in a way that everyone can be comfortable and everyone's boundaries are respected and, and your boundaries are respected. Um, so for instance, in, in the workshop, we do skits that show different ways of using positive consent. Um, and, and one of those scenarios is like classmates interacting and, one of the classmates asked to give another classmate a hug. Um, and and I guess it's and that's like a physical interaction, but then but then following that, um, one of them asked to smoke a cigarette in front of the other, which is something that you don't always think about and you don't realize that it could be affecting someone, you know, like, let's say someone has asthma, and they like can't be around cigarette smoke and and so viewing it in more than more than just a sexual, more than just a sexual concept but in every scope of any relationship any interaction
3: so there's been kind of a lot of uh I've seen these posters around we have one hanging up around our station um and we I had one back in my my co-op we have mm-hmm. one hanging there uh do you guys know what these posters are about are you have you been involved at all
5: yeah so Our university, along with ninety-four other universities, are under investigation for the way that they handle sexual assault and um, with throughout the university. And uh, so, me and so and a few others got together and we created these banners with uh, the current in draft definition of consent. Um, through the university, they are revising their sexual assault policy. So this is a proposed consent um, definition, and it's very thorough, and we agree with it, and we want to spread it around campus, as well as giving resources to on-campus and off-campus resources to call. Some of them are 24 hours a day. So just in case you ever need anything, just making you aware of your options and what, like, should be expected.
3: What are you looking to accomplish with these things? What are you, what message are you trying to send?
5: Well, one message I believe is just, like, spreading consent and knowing what it truly is, because in a lot of cases um, that do, people who do report sexual assault, a lot of times why things don't go, don't follow through with the um, legal system, I guess, is because there's this um, – there is said that there's no clear definition of consent, and so the more legal things can't, like, follow through. So we're just trying to spread that, as well as, like, information on resources for people. And then, um, like, I I really like... like, This is more, like, that's more focused on sexual consent, I feel, but I also really want to push for more consenting culture, just in general. Like, what Zoe was saying about those uh, wor- consent workshops was something that I really took from that was like the asking to smoke a cigarette in front of someone. Like I really respect that and consent can go in so many other ways than just sexual.
3: Yeah. Um, the main, the main kind of focus though, you guys said earlier is kind of the sexual aspect because of how MSU has been handling some, um, cases and generally around the country, how it's been handled. Um, what, what kind of uh, resources do you have, you guys, especially on this banner? What kind of resources, what kind of numbers did you put on it?
4: Um, well, there's several established resources on campus, um, and some of those include um, SASE, which is the Sexual Assault Crisis Intervention Program. They have a 24-hour hotline that they facilitate. Um, so we have that number on it, and, and they have also really great resources. Um, uh, resources there through that program um and have counseling available and then the msu counseling center
5: um and that's on campus and then there is a few other ones off campus the listening ear um the eve uh the police we have the police phone number and just trying to show people that there's many options i guess yeah there's also um through
4: Sparrow Hospital, there's, I can't remember the name of the program, but there's a program that's specifically related to sexual assault um, and, like, rape kits and also,
5: uh, like, crisis intervention. I believe they, I might have this wrong, but I believe they do work with SARV, maybe a little. I don't know. Never mind.
1: I don't know. (laughs) um,
3: So we mentioned uh, that there were some things that, Uh, consenting culture that can be accomplished outside of just sexual consent, but um, other kinds of consent. Um, It takes kind of two people in every relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So where do we draw the line of when you need to ask consent to do something around somebody or say something around somebody, um, and when it becomes the other party's responsibility to speak up about it?
4: good question um
5: that is a good question
4: yeah that's something that we try and address in the workshop um and I guess I guess a way to do that is to establish boundaries um and and to talk about in those boundaries what um like what check-ins look like for people and 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 we especially like to emphasize that each person is different, and everybody is coming from a different place and has different experiences, um, and so their needs are different from the next person. And so you can't, um, you can't necessarily come into a relationship with assumptions. Um, so it's really good to, to, um, at different steps of the relationship, to kind of um, express your boundaries and what what you're okay with, and when, like when you need check-ins, um, or um, and,
5: and that can be with like any type of relationship, I believe, um, intimate or just a friendship.
4: Yeah, someone I, you just meet. Yeah, I guess specifically to that question. Um, yeah, I guess I guess making space for that to happen um, in in your relationship, and I think that's something that isn't often talked about now or like in in programs that are established is like how to have healthy relationships or how to how to t- have these kinds of conversations and I think it's like pretty scary for people if they've never done it before and even if you have done it before it's not necessarily easy but um but it's it can be really great to um feel like you can uh like say no or say what you want or don't want or um and I, I guess it becomes the other person's responsibility when they're not comfortable with it. But but at the same time, um, you should be able to talk about something before it happens. I guess like that's that's um in my mind the whole reason for using consent is like prevention. So so that you don't cross someone's boundaries or you don't have an experience that's really uncomfortable. Um
5: Yeah.
3: Um have you I was told earlier today about a uh a documentary, I think, called
4: "Every Two Minutes." Every,
3: oh, maybe that's it. The yeah. one that every was two minutes. made
5: like on campus.
4: Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. 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 What What is this documentary about? Do you guys know anything about this? Um,
5: I saw it last year once. Uh, it's about every two minutes someone is sexually assaulted, and so it's a movie about um, sa- I believe it's sassy on campus, and um what they do and why they do what they do and, and how they um, go to hospitals with patients and how they talk with them um, for and just really following, like, they kind of follow the day in the life of, like, a sassy um, response caller. And they're on call for 24 hours a day. They talk to people. If they call into a hotline, they go to the hospital with them. And it's just showing the need, or I guess not the need, but just showing how prevalent it is. And they talk with many individuals who have been sexually assaulted. And I don't know.
3: Yeah, and you included them uh, as one of the contacts on the um, the uh, banner, right?
4: Sassy? Yeah. Yes.
3: Yeah. Um, so what what kinds of things do you think they could do to help people? Why did you put them on the banner? What?
5: SASE, I believe, is more of, um. SARV is the prevention side and SASE is the intervention. Yeah. And so they're a phone number to call um, if you need to talk to someone if you have been assaulted and um, they can help you with guidance on what to do. They can meet you at the hospital to go for an examination and they can give you more resources.
3: Is there anything else you'd like to really kind of say about you know getting the word out on campus or anything? Is there is there something you'd like to address?
4: We're looking to continue doing workshops around campus Um, and so if and we've been doing the the workshops for specific groups and we'd love to continue doing that and continue spreading the word um we're currently working on outreach, but, you know, it's a slow process building relationships, but we're more than happy to come to a groups meeting or create an
5: alternative meeting time to, to have these workshops um, and just really s- try and spread the consent culture around campus and spread knowledge about consent.
3: Awesome. Thanks so much for coming, guys.
5: Thank you. Thanks.
3: Coming up is a talk with Mark Weinstein about net neutrality and online security. But first, we go to Daniel Razel to talk about record stores.
6: My first memory of Record Store Day brings me back to a cold Chicago day in April 2012. I was there for a school field trip, and we were given a short amount of time to shop around the city. My goal? Find a local store that's participating in Record Store Day. At the time, I had just started collecting and listening to vinyl records, so the concept of an annual event dedicated to them was completely new to me. Surely, I thought, there was not a base of fans large enough to make this worthwhile. But to my surprise, I was wrong. After walking 45 minutes, I found a line going out the door at one of Reckless Records locations in Chicago. After waiting over 20 minutes in line, we paid for our records and hurried back to make it to our class group in time, grinning and sharing the purchases we made just minutes before. Over two years and 200 vinyl records later, my love for Record Store Day and local music stores has not diminished. This past week, I caught up with Heather Ferre, the owner of East Lansing's Record Lounge, over this coming Back to Black Friday, the other Record Store Day that takes place alongside Black Friday. Every Record Store Day comes with a host of exclusive physical music releases from big names and -and up-and-coming artists alike, which are only available to independent music retailers. This fall's releases include music by The Beatles, Echo Smith, First aid kit, Metallica, and music covering almost every genre. And Heather's favorites?
7: Gosh, I mean, there's so much this year compared to years prior, as far as where Black Friday goes. The Big Lebowski looks pretty cool. Um, there's a couple other ones uh I mean, it's the same kind of bands, you know, Flaming Lips always put something Mm. out. Um, There's a bunch of Christmas ones coming out this year, but uh, I think that Big Lebowski is one that I kind of want to get for my own.
6: The Record Lounge will be opening at 10 a.m. on November 28th and is one of the many record stores across the nation that will be celebrating this year's Back to Black Friday
7: independent stores, I mean, they're all about the, you know, customer service. You know, we're here to to serve you guys. Um, I always do what I can to uh, get what people want, I'll special order things. Um, You get that one-on-one contact uh, where you wouldn't online. I know a lot of people would rather just sit at home and, you know, surf the web for good deals, but... um, I always like to support the local businesses and the independents.
6: Ever since I started making regular visits at the record store in my hometown, I fell in love with the idea of shopping for music locally. Being able to create an experience out of buying music and to physically hold my music after spending time flipping through crates after crates of albums and carefully selecting my favorites was a gratifying experience.
7: I think people want that something tangible, something to hold on to look at, something to actually have in their possession rather than just a download on their iPhone or their you know their regular telephone or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people start collecting um, and it sounds a lot better, a hell of a lot better mm-hmm. than a download. Um, A download or a CD uh, is so compressed down that you just don't get the full everything, the full sound that you do in the the record.
6: During Heather's interview, we stopped to discuss what she was currently spinning.
7: It's the Thievery Corporation. They just reissued all of their vinyl. Um, This one is the Cosmic Game. This one just came out a week ago. Mm. Really good stuff.
6: And her enthusiasm for the vinyl brought me back to those memories that I made on that cold Chicago day, discovering a community I would quickly grow to love. Information on Back to Black Friday and the Record Lounge can be found at Impact89FM.org and RecordStoreday.com. For Impact News, I'm Dana (laughs) Rizal.
3: Net neutrality is a big topic for some people. But a lot of people are still in the dark about the meaning. I sit down with Mark Weinstein to talk about what net neutrality really is. Right now we are joined by Mark Weinstein... Um, he is an internet expert and expert of online privacy and security. Uh, Mark, how are you today? I'm great, Quinn. So the the question I'm going to have right now is, everybody, I've, you've kind of been hearing this around. Uh, it's kind of a big topic, but there's still a lot of people who don't really know what it means. Can you give us a breakdown of what net neutrality
8: means? You know, um, we should just give a very simple, because really, when you distill net neutrality, the fundamental principle of net neutrality is that you know, all companies can have access to providing data, information, content, their websites on the web, um, and that all customers, anybody who can access the web, will have equal access to be able to find you know, either a Google or a Facebook you know, or a Yahoo, I mean the, the giants, or a tiny company you know, operating out of somebody's garage and that the access will be as easy for all uh, to find any of those. And uh, the whole argument about net neutrality is really about whether um, the Internet uh, is um, something that's really just sort of a capitalist enterprise um, or whether it's a public utility that, that should be regulated for equal access. If it's just a capitalist enterprise, then... It's, really, it's a dangerous precedent because the, uh, the idea is that a company like Google or Facebook could buy airwaves, could dominate the airwaves um, in, a, in a way that would be unprecedented. In other words, they could squeeze out almost anybody by paying to control the, quote, airwaves, to control the Internet space. So you'd have to have deep pockets in order to participate on the Internet. It would shut down and shut out you know, thousands of small companies that couldn't pay to compete.
3: And this would be under the system of net neutrality?
8: Yes, that's okay. what net neutrality is all about.
3: So then the, the controversy, the reason it's a big talk right now is because we're seeing maybe that going away sometime in the fu-
6: future? Well,
8: that's right, right, exactly, because this, is, this, this is really opens up this whole question about should the Internet be regulated as a public utility? Now the answer is yes, absolutely. As a public utility, then we can all get access to it and we can all get access to the companies that we want. If, it's, if the answer is no, if we're not for net neutrality, and that, that will support net neutrality, if we're not for net neutrality, then what we're saying is that whoever's got the deepest pockets can buy the airwaves. That's a problem.
3: So right now the Internet kind of operates outside of that capitalist uh, structure we were talking about earlier. Right,
8: right, right, exactly. And, you know, listen, a good friend of mine is Sir Tim Berners-Lee. He's also an advisor to my company and to me. Um, and, uh, you know, so Tim's the founder of the World Wide Web. For, uh, you know, for our listeners, there really is a person who invented the World Wide Web. His name is Sir Tim Berners-Lee. Um, he's a scientist. So the, the web is 25 years old. Um, and you know, net neutrality is a really critical piece of the existence of the web.
3: All right. Um, so then this kind of growing uh, uh, talk of net neutrality being done away with, what is, what is, uh, what is striking up this conversation?
8: Who's, who's well, talking about Well, there's a lot of companies that would like to, to pay, you know, to push uh, greater access. So, you know, the whole idea about net neutrality is that it it levels the playing field. You know, in capitalism, companies don't like the playing field level. You know, Google wants to dominate the world. I mean, we all know that. It's obvious. Facebook wants to dominate the open communication of the world. Google wants to dominate all the information that you're looking for, gathering, you know, email, everything. They don't want to make room for competition. That's not their uh, modus operandi. So... Um, There's a lot of pressure, and we live in a capitalist system, and money influences politics. So there's a lot of pressure to undermine net neutrality. This is why President Obama has come out and taken, you know, rather heroically, uh, a strong stand on net neutrality. So um, net neutrality is complicated by this thing called ICANN also, so it gets a little more complicated uh, and I wrote an article in the Huffington Post about this because you know it's it's this whole issue of you know what if we get net neutrality but then we um, we start having many uh, you know uh, worldwide webs in every country so that the countries then can decide you know what uh, you know who who pays for the airwaves so we want net neutrality around the world also this is also very important so.
3: All right. Um, if, if we did see the end of net neutrality, what, what would that look like? How, how would that affect um, my daily internet surfing? What, what would be different about it?
8: Yeah, that's a great question. If we saw the end of net neutrality, then really, companies like Google and Facebook could take over the internet. Google, Facebook, Netflix, Interestingly enough, Netflix is a company that says we want net neutrality. Google and Facebook uh, don't want net neutrality. But what we would see is the end of your ability to start a company in your garage and get any access because you'd have to raise tens of millions of dollars in order to buy your way into the system in order to get web you know, airwaves so that you could broadcast, so that people could find you. So, you know, the the prospective end to net neutrality is something we all need to take very seriously, and we all need to support net neutrality in a very strong way. And again, it's nice to see the president take a stand on something, and taking a stand on something like net neutrality, which is so important, because he wavered for a while about this. And I wrote about that a while back on HuffPost. And now he said net neutrality is really important and it is really important it's important for competition it's important for entrepreneurship it's important for freedom of speech it's important on every facet that you could imagine
3: all right some people would would say right now that facebook and google and these companies already do kind of own the internet obviously it's not in the same exact way as you're talking but they have a huge huge impact you know almost everybody uses those websites um if net neutrality were to see this end obviously you couldn't you know start up your own business out of your garage and things like that but you know is there is there going to be something else that would change with these you know really large companies uh being able to buy their way into the internet
8: well listen you don't have to use facebook today you have all these choices you choose whether you use facebook mewe you know uh yahoo You choose whose mail service you use. You choose where you get your news. Imagine no net neutrality. Imagine that CNN or Fox or some other wealthy deep pocket news outlet then buys access to dominate the airwaves. Um, You know, this is serious. Today, Facebook actually tracks us at 1,205 of the top 2,510 websites in the United States. That's a fact that was published by the Wall Street Journal, by Elizabeth Dwoskin of the Wall Street Journal. So you're right. You know, the sort of long arm of these big companies is really pervasive. But do we want it to totally take over? No way. You know, the, uh, how do we change? How does, like, Tesla come into existence, for example? Let's look at the automobile industry. There's this revolutionary company called Tesla. All they do are build 100% pure electric cars that can go 300 miles on a charge. Now, if there was, you know, no room, no bandwidth for Tesla to exist, um, then they couldn't, you know, we could never have a revolution in the automobile industry. So, you know, capitalism and democracy are really founded on the principles that, you know, things change and that consumer tastes change and that we can evolve and move with it instead of being static capitalism and cap is a very dynamic economic institution net neutrality would uh... you know really sort of shoehorn that right into a box do you think that
3: net neutrality in capitalism because because capitalism is something that a lot of americans really, really cherish, and they they think it is the basis for uh, you know all of our society. Do you think net neutrality and capitalism can go hand in hand and work together, or do you think we need to move one way or the other?
8: No, net neutrality uh, really is capitalism in its purest economic sense, if you think about it, because net neutrality allows all companies to compete evenly across the playing field of the net, and then it allows the people to choose the companies that they like best and those are the companies that will succeed the most so but you know you always be able to have access to all the players on the playing field that's capitalism all
3: right another one of your uh, your big expertises is online privacy and online security um how how could we maybe see this change if net neutrality were to be done away with is security or privacy is that going to be at all some kind of struggle
8: well, you know, uh, Quinn, that's really an interesting question because when you look at the concentration of power already in the hands of a company like Google, um, and then you look at the, if net neutrality were to go away, um, and you look at the power that Google already has, and then their power to dominate, you know, Google already dominates information. Uh, I recently wrote uh, an article in Huffington Post about this, and I've been interviewed extensively about this across the United States. Consider this already: Google already knows what you're doing online, what you're doing at home uh, because of Nest. You know what you're doing outside your home. You know Android and Google satellites. What you're working on with Google Documents. Who you're talking to. You know your Android Gmail, Google Plus. What you're listening to with Google Play. What you're watching with YouTube. Um, you know, et cetera. Where you're going with Google Maps. You know, when you're going to go with Google Calendar, um, what you're looking for, you know, and how to manipulate your reality with Magic Leap. Google already has such dominance. And then can you imagine, you know, no net neutrality where a company like Google, as massive as they are, now controls the airwaves? So, I mean, this is really um, not the vision of Tim Berners-Lee. It's not the vision of what the World Wide Web was created for. Um, it was ne- it was created so that we could all connect and communicate, not so that corporate America and particular the deepest pockets of corporate America could dominate and dictate what you can do and what you can listen to and what you can use.
3: So you you are the 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 founder of a, a social media website, is that right? That's right. It's called Mewe. M e w e. And the goal of this website was to. Uh kind of give, give some more privacy back to its users?
8: Well, you look at what's happened to privacy, and we really have to define privacy for everybody. And also, Quinn, I think it's good for, for everybody to know that I'm one of the founders of social media. So I built one of the first companies before MySpace, before Facebook. Um, it was called Supergroups. And uh, now, you know, today with MeWe, and, you know, we've got an incredible team, uh, you know, of um, you know, very you know, it's it's a very young, aggressive company with a young leadership team. Um, but we're looking at what happened to privacy. You know, if Facebook uses facial recognition and owns my content and can track everything that I'm doing, including watching me at 1,200 websites that they're not even, you know, it's not even Facebook sites, but they're they're you know tracking and spying on me everywhere. They're listening through Facebook Messenger to everything that I say, the music you know, their privacy policies are so egregious, that's a huge violation. We can't really be private. It affects the jobs that we get. It affects our relationships. It affects our ability to get into college and graduate school. You know, the whole world is now watching everything that we do, even if we, quote, you know, tighten down our privacy settings at Facebook. That has nothing to do with what they're doing. They're watching everything. They're organizing it, aggregating it using it to target us, um, and that information lives forever, and strangers can get to it. It's really gotten way out of hand. So So, MeWe, the first thing that we've done, and I've also gotten an award from the Canadian government for being an ambassador of privacy by design, because privacy by design means you build it in, you bake it in. So MeWe, we don't spy. There's no tracking. There's a privacy bill of rights, and this is really important because, you know, the fourth amendment gives us privacy in our constitution and corporate america is taking it away so permissions you know you control who accesses your content we have no tracking we have no facial recognition uh... they're your friends not ours we don't spy on your contact list you can delete your account anytime you want download your content take it with you um... you know all this stuff that's what privacy is and and no you know no creepy people no no weirdos no strangers See what you're doing, you know, and your grandmother doesn't see what she's not supposed to see. So it's sort of like people call this a revolution what we're doing, and we call it common sense.
3: Do you think uh, that because now we're we're seeing this age of uh, people that are kind of grew up with social media, and now they're kind of getting older, and they're you know they're students in college, and they're you know graduating into the real the real world. Um, Do you think this generation is uh, maybe missing something when it comes to privacy? Maybe they they grew up experiencing the wrong kind of privacy?
8: Um, You know, I think everybody, you know, this generation, let's call them right now, let's say 17 to 25. All right. right. And uh, what's happening is that, you know, it was really, really fun right, the the ecstasy of Facebook was really a lot of fun, like, wow, we could post to the world, where you know, we can just connect with our friends everywhere, <clears throat> wow, everybody can see what we're doing, um, but then, wait a minute, but, you know, our parents are there, and, and wait, mom can see what I'm doing? You know, that's not cool, and my grandmother can see it, and then, you know, I ruin a relationship, and then... You know, we all have friends who didn't get into the college they wanted to get into because of something they did in social media or they didn't get a job that they wanted to do. Uh, they wanted that they apply for because of their social media, the legacy of social media. Um, and now we have friends who are getting a little bit older. They're 25, 26 some in the workplace, and we're hearing about you know them getting in trouble because of what they do in social media. So I think there's a real wake-up call, and this is where – you know, um people really you know ran over to Snapchat, and then Snapchat became like the the next big thing. only you know Snapchat lied to us because you know they're founded these companies are founded by like Facebook cronies, and so you know they didn't really mean their privacy the The federal government just fined them. Snapchat got fined you know a big amount for lying about privacy. their pictures don't disappear. And they're still stuck on ever phone. I sent those, you know, if I was sexting somebody or just sharing, you know, something, that, you know, a party I was at or some, you know, sensitive information. I mean, that data is still there. It's not only on Snapchat servers. It's on the phones that I sent it to. So, you know, I think we're just getting tired of being lied to uh, by companies like Pat and Snapchat and Facebook that pretends to have privacy when they don't. And I think, you know, you're looking at these the statistics you know, two years ago, if you asked a 20-year-old uh, if they were worried about privacy, a room of 120-year-olds, you might have gotten two people to raise their arm. Today, you'll get 30 to 40 of people, you know, to raise their arm if you poll. And, you know, recent studies show that Pew, Pew uh, just came out with studies 91% of Americans are worried about privacy across generations. Uh, the Harris Interactive poll that came out in uh, July that said 99 percent of us are worried about it. So,
3: how do you think this is going to affect this generation of 17 to 25 year olds? How, how do you think this has affected them now, and how do you think it'll affect them in the future?
8: Well, it's really it's it's really curious because you know five years ago, you know, it was their parents saying you should worry about privacy. Then their parents became the late adopters of Facebook, right? And so now the parents are all over Facebook, which became kind of strange in and of itself. And now it's the kids saying, "Oh my God, wait a minute! This is this this public, you know, persona doesn't work." Um, so what we're seeing is, you know, we've already seen this. You know, the millions of pe- of uh, young people going over to uh, Snapchat, and then that didn't work. Millions of young people going over to WhatsApp, particularly in Asia, for you know, what was supposed to be, what you know, encrypted texting. But, of course, Facebook bought WhatsApp and their encryption is is loosey-goosey. It's not really it's, – it's terrible encryption, actually. So I, what I think we're seeing is that, you know, um, this hunger for the 17- to 25-year-old crowd to want the real thing. You know, listen, we want to share pictures, right? We want to share the party we were at last night, the frat parties. You know, we want to share – uh, the fun that we're having, doing something that's a little, you know, it's, it's out there a little bit. We want to share that stuff, and we don't want everybody to know about it. Um, and so we've got to find places that are real. And this is why Tim Berners-Lee, the founder of the web, you know, was one of my advisors. This is why, you know, in addition to all my media appearances, I moved back to Silicon Valley and said, we're going to build a new company that gives privacy back to people because I love technology, so we can't stop using technology but we just got to have a product that really works for us where we can share everything privately, delete it, videos, photos, voice messaging, you know, documents, everything with privacy we trust.
3: All right. And then I guess uh, kind of on a final note here, uh, where, where, where do you see the future going, including when we're talking about net neutrality, when we're talking about this security? Uh, what, do you, what do you think needs to happen? What do you think is likely to happen?
8: Well, you know, we should talk a little bit about what the we just learned, right, last week about the U.S. Marshal Service, which got me an interview in Iran, um, you know, because I wrote an article about the U.S. Marshal Service and their dirt boxes. So, you know, for, for our listeners, um, you know, f- forget the NSA. The U.S. Marshal Service has been flying uh, planes around the USA with what are called dirt boxes in these planes, which pretend that they're cell towers, and they... Uh, They, they, you know, our phones are tricked into checking in with these dirt boxes so that the U.S. Marshals know where we are, you know, what time of day, where we are around the country, every citizen. Um, So what's happening is it's time for the privacy revolution. So it's time for us to stand up and say the Fourth Amendment was written by our founding, the founders of this country and ratified in 1792 for a reason. Of course, they couldn't even imagine technology back then, but they knew privacy. I mean, do you want people to know your political views um, for the rest of your life? Do you want people to know what you search for today for the rest of your life? Do you want that information out there as governments change, as your life changes, as your employers change? Do you want people to be able to find out that stuff about you? No way. So that's private. This is Privacy is not about I have nothing to hide. Privacy is for law-abiding citizens. So I think what we're going to see, Quinn, is a real privacy revolution, I think it's starting right underneath our noses. I think companies like MeWe, I think, you know, the, you know, President Obama saying net neutrality is important. I think the Supreme Court recently ruling that your cell phone can't be searched without a warrant. That was a huge breakthrough. Congress isn't going to act, but at least the Supreme Court is tasked with upholding the Constitution. Um, so I think we're going to see some real changes where we're going to use technology because technology is great. Uh, Europe. You didn't, I don't know if you saw this, and I have an article coming out on this later today. Uh, in Brussels on Friday, it was announced that Europe is considering taking a major legal action against Google to break them up because they own too much data. So this is the beginning, man. The privacy revolution is real. We want to share, but we don't want Big Brother to know, and Big Brother is today, Facebook, Google. We don't want companies to know what we're doing, and we don't want the NSA to know what we're doing. We're law-abiding Democracy, citizens, we want our privacy.
3: All right. Thanks so much for joining me today, Mark.
8: Thanks, Quinn. My pleasure to be here.
3: the final segment of the show, an impact reporter tackles Yik yak, but she finds a greater issue within it. Now we go to Audrey Matus.
1: There are a million ways to get a girl to love you There are a million more To fall straight on your face And baby, I'll let you decide Which category this one falls in Having a Vietnamese guy Sing you a lot in serenade
9: Since raising more than $10 million and 240,000 users since its release last November, Yik Yak has caused headaches on college campuses throughout America, including Michigan State. For those unfamiliar with the app, Yik Yak is essentially an open message board for locals. Posts often provide uncensored commentary on hooking up, sporting events, and financial struggles. However, it was not until I arrived to campus that I recognized the vicious side of Yik Yak. Students native to Asian countries were being targeted as unwelcome guests. On September 5th, I screenshotted 10 anti Asian posts. Jasmine Vang, a senior at MSU majoring in human development family studies, showed me a couple posts that she had also seen.
10: Damn Asians, we can't understand you. I'll be honest, I hate Asians. That was on the time. Um, I can't wait for all the new Asians to get a little taste of driving,
9: driving during the winter,
10: car accidents for days. The
9: Asian hate, as Jasmine often called it, bled over into the next day, September 11th, with the Post.
10: Here, here's another one. It says, we should have a perch on campus, but instead of everybody killing everybody, let's just kill Asians. I didn't think about it as like a platform for like people to write racial comments, you know, Mm -hmm. like racial slurs and stuff. Um, But that's what it's turning into.
9: Jasmine was born and raised on the east side of Detroit. Both her parents had to work full-time five days a week at a range of jobs just to make ends meet. Throughout her childhood, Jasmine says she grew up feeling like an outsider compared to her classmates. Even in the classroom, she sensed that being Asian in America wasn't fully accepted.
10: What I realized growing up was we spent a lot of time learning about like um, colonialism and like uh, the like black slavery, but like every time it, 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 like we happen to talk about like like, the Asian stuff, you know, like, like we we talk a little bit about, like, the Silk Road. <laughs> and, and then after that, that's it. Like, like, and then, like, everything else is sort of just, like, brushed um, off, you know?
9: When she was 14, she discovered her outlet in a youth program called DAY, which stood for the Detroit Asian Youth Program.
10: And it was a nonprofit, um, like, social justice activist kind of group. So we talked about, like, um, you know, like, Basically, a bunch of issues, and we talked about like how can we embrace our identity as Detroiters and Asians. Um, through that program, it sort of like empowered me to sort of
9: accept who I am as an Asian and be proud of Detroit. Since coming to Michigan State, Jasmine has flourished in MSU's cultural melting pot, and the sense of not belonging had not visited her until she discovered Yik Yak.
10: I like I didn't realize that like there was so much hate. Four Asian students at MSU, like, like to me, like, like I have gone to school at MSU for four years, and I never felt like that anybody hated me until like I read these like messages. To me, like all these seem as if like um, every single Asian on campus is international. Mm -hmm. I was born in the United States, you know, Mm -hmm. like so I was like I'm Asian American. So like sometimes I'm like, well, this doesn't apply to me, but then. But then, like, I saw this um, one post. She scrolled through her phone to locate the act. Let's see. Yeah, people think um, that everyone only hates the Asian international students, but the truth is, Asian American students are just as
9: bad. The anonymous nature of Yik Yak opens the door for unfiltered thoughts, which unfortunately brings out prejudice and ignorance that people often edit out before speaking.
0: I would say those statements are both very blatant prejudice. Um, I would think that students would not feel comfortable saying these things or posting them where they can be linked back to their identity because they don't really want to stand behind what they say. I would say that maybe a lot of what's motivating this is that they haven't really gotten to know any international students, especially where they're using the blanket term Asians too. It means that is a continent, that's not specific places that people are coming from even.
9: That was Jenny Craigs, the intercultural aide at Snyder Hall. As an intercultural aide, she says it is her job to be an academic, social, and cultural supporter to everyone in the building, and especially to new students to MSU. The office of President Simon echoed a similar response. Although the president declined an interview, Associate VP for Communications, Kent Casella, issued a statement that read, Recognizing and confronting bigoted and hateful speech wherever it is found is part of what being a Spartan is all about. Unfortunately, due to the anonymous nature of Yik Yak, we simply do not know if any of the posts you reference were made by MSU students or not. Yes, the cloak of anonymity can lead to fraud, but to Jasmine who uses the app, the belief that these Yaks are from fellow colleagues is very real. Reading
10: these, like, messages, it's just, I was like, I just want to stay in my room, and I don't want to meet anybody today, because, like, it's not that, like, I, it's not like, like, I was scared of anybody, but it was just that I didn't want to look at anybody, because, because to me, like, I I, like read, it's like reading someone's diary and knowing like what they like, what their true feelings are, you know? And then like what happened for the next couple of days was I just kept reading and reading and seeing all these like racist stuff written about Asians. And then I just started to feel really like, like I started feeling like sort of like the same hatred back. And then I realized I was like, you know what? This is really like, it's poisonous, you know? Like I can't keep reading these um, yik
9: yaks and like, I have to delete the app. (laughs) Because of its college appeal, Yik Yak even has a peak option that allows users to view Yaks from the campuses of over 200 universities from around the country. In fact, there is no other filtering system for Yaks besides proximity to a college campus. The posts from other universities were pretty similar to MSU's, dissing other universities, hating on Greeks, and of course, party talk. However, there was no sight of racial slurs or bigotry. With that said, back in September, 300 students at Colgate University protested the app, for its racist and homophobic content and pushed for its ban on campus. Along with Colgate, Utica College has also banned the use of the app. Groups of students from larger universities like Ohio State have taken a stand against the app for its misogyny, racism, and bullying. The need for a change in how students understand and interact with those from another culture has been recognized by faculty at Michigan State. Assistant Professor of Arts and Humanities Kathleen Kaplowitz teaches undergraduates about the various social identity groups in the United States and believes in making diversity education a requirement.
10: Uh, I I actually would wholeheartedly support um, uh, an undergraduate requirement that students participate in some sort of diversity class. I know at Mm -hmm. other campuses um, there are requirements for undergraduates to have two credits in a class, and there's long list of classes that would fit that requirement, but I think that as we enter, you know, what what everybody knows is a global world, Mm -hmm. um, facilitating the opportunity for our students to really get uh, practice in communicating across cultures, across languages, across any kind of difference that we have on campus is a skill that will be useful no matter what they go into.
9: Jenny, the intercultural aide, believes that though most students on campus are accepting of those of other cultures, they do not necessarily make the effort to interact with people different from them.
0: I feel like they're, less, they're not likely to be outwardly offensive or prejudicial, but they're pretty likely to kind of stick to people who look and speak like them. Um, I feel like, especially on the part of white students, who are the majority here still, there's a hesitancy to reach out to people who are different.
9: I thought of this last line after I asked Jasmine what she culturally identified as.
0: Um, so like, I don't know, this is like, I don't know,
10: people ask, oh, I just consider myself Asian American. Asian American. Yeah.
9: Her hesitancy to explain her race reminded me of when my best friend from high school would use a different name just to order a drink from Starbucks, or when she allowed a substitute teacher to butcher her name just to avoid the hassle of giving a lesson on how to properly pronounce her traditional Vietnamese name. The thought that these definitive characteristics would be too much of a burden for someone outside of their culture to learn is a serious issue that remains for many minority people. When I asked Jasmine to explain the Asian Pacific American Student Organization, or APASO, she gave a clearer understanding of her ethnic background.
10: So this is how I explain it. Apostles like our mother, okay. and all of the ten we so were like siblings. Um, So um, I'm also the president of HASA. So it stands for the Hmong American Student Association. So my ethnic background, I'm Hmong. A lot of people don't know what that is. Um, We talk a lot about, like, our culture. It's just like an organization to celebrate, like, you know, like the Hmong culture and sort of, like, tell people, like, this is who we are and this is what we do.
9: On November 3rd, in the Vincent Chin Memorial Room at Holden Hall, HASA co-hosted the event Cultural Link with another student organization, SACE, which supports Asian scientists and engineers on campus. The room was full of faces representing various ethnicities, all with a desire to hear about cultures other than their own. After refreshments and icebreakers, the students separated into six discussion circles. The majority of those in attendance identified as Asian American and grew up in predominantly white areas. A couple students shared that from adolescence into this day, they find it difficult being both Asian and American. Around um, international students, they became insecure that they had become too Americanized. Then among their American, mostly white friends, they felt that they were the token Asian friend or cultural outcasts. Annie, an international student at MSU, was born in China and came to the United States when she was 16. Since then, her involvement in SACE has helped her to see the importance of intercultural relations on campus.
2: Um, I think... In any communities, and of course, like the minorities who are having different stigmas or having some discrimination against, there's always needed to be explained, or they also need to, um, space to share the knowledge why people do things like that. Because sometimes it just really just misunderstanding, or sometimes it just pure um, discrimination or um, prejudice that from the movies or from the TV shows people see. So definitely it's something is important to have our own voice and to share what do you think. Because sometimes maybe people see it like, oh, because you're Asian, you advocate for it. But at the same time, if you have someone else that didn't understand that you're having a conversation with them, they become understanding. And then they will, go, they will going to be on your side to explain it for you as well.
9: Irene is the secretary historian of SACE and identifies as Asian American. She feels that because Asians are stereotyped as a model minority, that people often ignore how they are being represented in society.
10: Asian Americans are not some homogenized group, and we, you know, every single minority goes through that. We all go through... We should not be stereotyped. We should not be homogenized. But when we turn around and we say you do not have the right to say anything because you supposedly in the stats have a good representation for your minority, you are cutting out an entire like subset of people who don't, mm-hmm. and an entire subset of people within the Asian like population that maybe might not be as well off. And um, that was something that we definitely talked about because when you do that to a minority group when you take certain traits and you put them on a minority group and even if they are positive traits mm-hmm. ultimately that is a negative outcome because you are homogenizing a group and, and everything within that and, you know I you asked know,
9: Jasmine earlier if she felt that joking and being prejudiced toward the Asian population was becoming normalized in society
10: and Asians, you know, we're pr- we're not, like, new to America. No, we've been around for a long, long time. But it's just that we've always been known as the type of people who are, like, quiet and passive, and we don't really stand up for ourselves. I feel like with, like, the new age Asian-Americans, such as myself, mm-hmm. you know, like, um we're, we're, you know, because a lot of us, like, we still come from, like, a first, second generation families, and our parents are so, like, traditional, and then, like, we're sort of, like taught to keep our mouth shut. Mm-hmm. but like growing up in America that's like I'm realizing that you know like it's not okay when like people like uh, make fun of you and like say racist stuff and expect you to be okay with it. I feel like um, Asian Americans especially now are learning to like fight against it.
9: The voice of young Asian Americans and international students for social justice is not only growing in MSU but on college campuses across the United States. And it's about time. Asians first migrated to the U.S. in the 18th century and later were brought over as slaves due to a shortage in Africa. Recognizing the rooted connection between America and Asia is a centric piece in understanding the country's culture and is frankly long overdue. For Impact News, I'm Andre Matuse.
3: That's all we have for tonight. A special thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, and our station manager, Gabriella Saldivia. I've been your host, Quinn Hoffman, and this has been Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to
2: Impact Exposure. 89FM.